It's Beatles 60 Live, we jumping around. Uh, I'm Andy, I'm here with Larry, and we're going to be talking today about some very simple concepts, phenomenology and hermeneutics. Uh, you know all about those, right? Well, let me admit that the use of these big terms kind of makes my brain go numb. <laughs> but when I get an explanation, it really makes a lot of sense. So, Larry, uh, this is kind of your, your area, so how about a short... Uh, explanation of what we'll be talking about so that we can get to a couple of great guests that listeners are anxious to hear from. Lawrence? I think most listeners kind of know what Beatles 60 is about. Um, we like to use highfalutin names for our methodology, but it's in fact really straightforward. I'll summarize it in a moment, but my main idea for this episode is to differentiate B60 from the whole process of historical research, that we're just a very minor little process within it. And we have serious scholars on today, and it's the kind of occasion where we have to keep our limitations in mind. So our eight jumping around promos, uh, you use the phrase, longitudinal phenomenological historiographic study. Uh, can you unpack that a bit? Okay. Yeah. Uh, longitudinal just means that we're very focused on the 60 years past timeline. Our social media and podcast material isn't looking at this day in Beatle history, where January jumps from their tour in Scotland in 63, their arguments at Twickenham Studios in 1969, and so on, jumping all over the place. It's not like that. We're focused in on today, 60 years ago, each day. It's historiographic in that most of us in the B60 community don't perform original historical research. We kind of do, but you know, by digging up old melody makers and things. But we rely on the most confident uh, sources. In our case, you're the one with the 359 books on the topic. That would be me, yes. <laughs> so for each, <laughs> for each day, uh, we can pull together info from David Rees, Torsten Knoblauch, Mark Lewison, and our guest today, for example, and all we do is sort of virtually experience what was happening each day as like a chronicle or a soap opera. Right, yeah. And this brings us to phenomenology, is basically the study of human experience. Um, and hermeneutics came from methods of studying texts, uh, texts, <laughs> basically uh, methods of interpretation and understanding of contexts other than our own. It started out with ancient texts, but you can apply, anything can be a text. An interview can be a text, you know. Uh, because we don't jump around and because we immerse ourselves in the context of the time, you know, in many ways on Facebook, we're listening to 1963 hits. We're looking at January 1963 disc magazine, enemy Melody Maker, um, Mersey Beat, and what have you. Looking at film, television, and art of the time, learning all about even the severe weather they had in Britain this time 60 years ago. Knowing where the Beatles were last night and where they're headed this afternoon, today they happen to be on a children's TV show in Glasgow. Roundup. Ha ha. And because of all this, we can walk in their Beatle boots. We can, with better confidence, interpret and understand their time and their experiences. What we might discuss today is our level of confidence in the guesswork involved in this reading between the facts. It's fallible. Sometimes we're confident, sometimes not. 
but it gives us insights that we share with listeners. Maybe some can use this, the insights, use them as jumping off points for research. Our uh, role turns out to be like generating insights that suggest further research, what they call heuristic value. Uh, I know what you mean. I, I think the process does result in some pretty impressive insights. That's right. Right. And so how do you explain uh, the insights to our listeners today? The, uh, the most useful one uh, that I find isn't unique. I mean, any Beatle expert would echo this, but for me, I don't have uh, many of the books. I have a busy life, but the insights we garner from the longitudinal study, the chronicling, turn out, I've discovered, to be kind of uh, common among experts. That is, um, I like to focus on conditions, especially sociocultural conditions, but of course, musical trends too. And the way the Beatles were pre-adapted seemingly for each stage of their development. And you call it a big old puzzle, right? Where each incident is a piece like Paul's girlfriend miscarrying, right? Or national service ending. And David Bedford calls it a perfect storm, and I, I think it's really a strong consensus. Um, you're right. Um, here's Kenneth Womack. As long as you're staying uh, at, inside the historical record, which, by the way, yeah. uh, to your great credit, is what you guys are doing, right? You're trying to stay inside of the history and tell the story as it unfolds, which is what, where the story is most interesting, right? Mm. The Beatles are not a settled question in January 1963. Anything can happen. Anything and nothing right. uh, can happen. So they they could be one hit wonders at this point, you know, <laughs> and probably should have. Right. <laughs> um, all of the forces are saying that that's exactly what should happen. And yet within two years, you'll be able to look back and say, wow, Brian, John Paul, George and Ringo and George Martin pushed over an entire industry uh, that didn't want them to come through the front door because right. of various socioeconomic uh, kinds of concerns. And they just came up, they come in and rewrite it. Right. And it takes decades for the industry sort of to respond to that because, of course, it doesn't want to at first. It liked the recording artist model where bands came in, mm. recorded a song, got the hell out of there, went on the road. Yeah. To sell the record, the lion's share of which proceeds would go directly to the record company and stayed in their lane. The Beatles are not going to stay in their lane. Mm. We'll be right back. Friends, listen up. Beatles 60 is a project for everyone who's interested in the Beatles' real story and wants to learn more about them and their times. The project adopts a longitudinal, phenomenological, and historiographic approach. It's meant to be an independent and unbiased search for insights, aiming to understand the Beatles' impact and significance from the perspective of people who witnessed and shaped the 1960s. 
with a focus mostly on the Beatles story. Unlike other Beatles-related groups and podcasts, we're not especially interested in ranking or comparing the Beatles with other artists or in celebrating their supposed bestness. We're interested in exploring how the fabs seemed at every step almost pre-adapted to have an effect on the world, and how they developed within the 1960s world as it was with its contemporary socio-cultural conditions, and uh, what we can learn from their story today. If you share this curiosity, by all means, please do join us in this journey of discovery and exploration. You can find everything related to Beatles 60 on the web at B-E-A-T-L-E-S-6-0.group. There you'll find links to the podcast and the Facebook group. You'll also find an archive of past episodes of this podcast, complete with descriptions and links. We give lots of links related to most episodes. In Google, don't put any space between Beatles and 6-0. It's all like one word with seven letters and two numbers at the end, so nine continuous characters. Got a pen? Check it out now. B-E-A-T-L-E-S-6-0 dot group. And uh, Kenneth Womack says that nobody does it alone, which I wanted to mention because, spoilers, Dr. Womack happens to be with us today. And we have a return guest as well, Rob Gertson, uh, who has a master's degree in cognitive science from the University of Amsterdam, studies Beatles history beyond commercial biographies, as he was put it. Um, so really quickly, Larry... What are the topics for today? Well, today we have a couple of guests who are going to take over, sort of, <laughs> at least the first half of the show. They're going to give us a preview of Ken Womack's upcoming book on Mal Evans, and uh, it's the untold story of Mal Evans, the Beatles' road manager and assistant. It'll be a little bit about the challenges and risks that Mal faced in his career and in his life, and the impact that Mal support uh, made on uh, the Beatles' legacy and history. That sounds good. Um, and so without further ado, and kind of moderating this for us, welcome Dr. Kenneth Womack, professor of English and popular music at Monmouth University, author and editor of several books about the Beatles, some of which I've cited in my own research. And I'm really excited about his upcoming Mal Evans project, because you know I, along with many other people <laughs> loved seeing Mal in the Get Back documentary. Thanks so much for being here. Let's turn it over to Kenneth Womack. Oh, thank you so much. Did we lose Rob? He's muted. I lost he's, Rob. Yeah, me too. Or did I lose me? Rob, you're muted. If you're- I think he's- Oh, uh, maybe we did. I don't know. No. Rob, are you hearing us at all? Whoa. Hey, Rob. Rob, where'd you go? Rob? Rob. This is Beatles 60, we ain't jumping around. I'm Larry. Uh, that was a special Halloween intro. Were you spooked? Anyway, we're back in your feed. Here we are. Maybe you've missed Beale 60, but here we are.
this is a great episode, but we did encounter really severe technical difficulties while recording it. So before we get back to Kenneth Womack with his new biography of Mal Evans, I have to warn you, this interview recording is a bit strange. Why? Because our guest interviewer, Rob Gertson, uh, he's the historiographer, Rob Gertson, he had some technical issues. The first 40 minutes weren't uploaded, basically. His voice uh, was missing from the group stream. Uh, the reference track with all four participants. So it was totally unretrievable. You won't hear his questions or comments, only our responses or reactions or whatever. You will hear him next week and the week after, though. So it didn't happen throughout the two hours, but only his first 40 minutes. Yes, it's weird that the interview questions are missing from this first of a series of three episodes on Mal Evans, but Ken Womack's responses are absolutely worth listening to. He shares with us some deep insights about Mal's life and struggles, Mal's roles in the Beatles story, and more. We'll be right back. Something that's very missing from the first episode, which is kind of important, is that Rob is not only a Beatles historiographer, he is a big fan in particular of, well, books in general, Beatle books in general. He, he's got them all. <laughs> he's a prolific reader. But more important than that is that he uh, follows the work of Ken Womack very closely and their friends. So when the two of them are together, you're really getting great questions from Rob. So it's ironic that he's missing <laughs> from this first part. But you'll hear him in this in the second and third uh, episodes. If if you're getting these amazing responses from from Ken, uh, Rob Gertzen deserves uh, credit for that. Even though you don't hear him, our ghost host, our silent host, in this episode. Now, if you're curious about what happened with Rob and why his audio was messed up. Don't worry, at the end of this episode, I'll give you the full account of the fiasco. 
It's quite a saga, and uh, in telling it, I'll shed some light on uh, this podcast half-year absence. So, without further ado, let's listen to part one of our interview about the man who was there to support the Beatles from his hiring in 1963 all the way through to the dissolution of the group in 1970 and into their solo years in the 70s. The discussion is then turned over to Rob and Ken. They begin with the observation slash insight that in human artistic achievement, nobody does it alone. Rob talks with Ken about the unique excitement around this unveiling of Mal Evans's biography and archives. Womack argues that nobody does it alone in the history of art, as no one is working alone in a perfect vacuum. Well, Mal, as you know, um, performs a really significant role in the Beatles story. And I do say nobody does it alone, because that's true throughout the history of art. You know, no one is there um, working by themselves in some kind of perfect vacuum. And if they are, it's an extremely rare situation, right? Yeah. I mean, Vincent van Gogh at Theo, <laughs> we, all, we all have someone who helps us enact our creations. Mm. And the Beatles were certainly no exception. Um, that very important and illustrious dream team that that ran the Beatles show, you know, the Beatles themselves, of course, but also Brian Epstein and, and George Martin, you know, that core group really made the difference. But of course, even they uh, needed help. And that's where Mal comes in. Mal is uh, this essential cog. And the Get Back film in those days at Twickenham and the Apple Studios really did demonstrate, uh, remind us, uh, a lot of folks, about the, the role that Mal performed. And it was one that changed by the minute. Um, you know, one minute he's making beans and toast, and the next minute he's playing an instrument. So um, all things were possible in Mao's world, but absolutely an essential role uh, in in understanding their story. And, and that's true, again, uh, whether we're talking about painters or writers or certainly in, in the case of the Beatles, these great legend-making songwriters and musicians. We concentrate our energies, particularly... Uh, in our time and age on the artist, right? Um, the performer, what have you. Um, and working on this project has developed, uh, for me, a kind of sensitivity um, to understanding or listening to the stories of, of celebrities and writers and artists and thinking, well, who's back there working for them? And, and often you have to do a little digging to find out. Um, <clears throat> as you know, I do a podcast of my own. And I was recently talking to the bass player for the band Travis, and uh, we got in a great, uh, what to me was a great conversation about who their Mal was, right? And understanding that person's role that they'd been performing really for like 20, 30 years. Um, and without him, you know, uh, they couldn't function. He was the glue or is the glue. Travis is a, a working band. So yeah, it's, it's a unique, it's a unique way to look at the story of an artist. Absolutely. We'll be right back. Suddenly, the world I used to know, I see it differently. You woke me from a dream, now here's reality. Baby, baby, you are really hurting me. Cause every time you tell me I'm good and bad, I'm doing fine. But nothing ever changes.
This is the Beatles 60 podcast. We ain't jumping around. You get it? I'm Adrian, the co-host. Yes, I'm artificial. So what? We could attempt to compile a comprehensive list of the peripheral members of uh, Brian Epstein's and George Martin's extended team members, including publicists, engineers, et al. But we're focusing in on Mal. He and Neil Aspinall played essential roles in the group's innermost circle. Ken emphasizes that Mal and Neil worked for the Beatles and Company, not NEMS or Apple. Mal worked overtime hours that often weren't required. He contributed above and beyond his job description. His loyalty seemed to know no bounds. He would sacrifice his role as husband and dad, leaving his family behind in London for months on end to continue serving the four in various capacities, even during the, the individual Beatles uh, solo years. Well, um, you know, prior to having access to Mal's diaries and his manuscripts and the thousands of photographs that he amassed and just plenty of sheer old documentation, letters, etc. Uh, prior to this, I had no idea the level to which Mal devoted himself to the band, uh, really at his own peril. Um and, uh, well, ultimately to his peril, right, in, in, in one sense or another, uh, Mal uh, went much further uh, even than, uh, than Neil Aspinall, who, of course, magnificently performed for the Beatles for, my God, right, 50 years, uh, whatever the number happened to be, uh, absolutely incredible. Mal went way above and beyond the call. He just simply could not contain his devotion and loyalty and admiration for them. It's uh, staggering the level to which, particularly in the late 60s, or certainly in the early 70s during the solo years, he would disappear. He would leave London with them for months on end uh, to continue serving in whatever capacity he was to bring off a solo album or uh, certainly during the Apple years on behalf of Apple artists. It was quite staggering what he would do. I think beyond what any of us would contemplate doing for, uh, certainly for our jobs. <laughs> so, you know, I, I did do a lot of economic study. I spoke to economists, British economists, who specialize in that period of, of time in British economic history. I spoke to just um, some, some folks here in the States uh, who do this kind of work, uh, trying to understand you know, how badly was Mal actually paid? And, um, you know, uh, compared to the Beatles, of course, he made peanuts. Yeah. And that's okay, because that's typically true. Um, there are exceptions. For example, um, I believe his name is Phil Harvey with uh, Coldplay, uh, has been so essential to them that um, they very generously include him in everything, sometimes even songwriting credits. So he's made out handsomely uh, with with the band he he serves. Um, but you know, we have to realize that, of course, the Beatles were in another time and place. And and one thing we we always have to remember when we talk about this group, um, and even into the early seventies, right, with acts like Bruce Springsteen and others that they're still sort of making up their jobs. These aren't jobs yet that people are willing to acknowledge. You know, today, 
uh, and I'm I'm not making this up. You know, an artist and their crew might have 401k plans, right? Right? They might have pension and retirement plans. That's uh, but but that that level of evolution did not exist uh, for the whole of Mal's time um, in their employ, which was really almost to the end of his life. So, um, but you know, getting down to brass tacks, the money made that Mal made was pretty good. Um, he made a lot more than than uh, laborers in similar kinds of positions. Where I think the money breaks down um, is the sheer hours he was putting in, right? So he might get a weekly salary that is, um, comparatively speaking, a lot better than what laborers with his skill level were making at the time. But it doesn't account for just the sheer crazy hours of Mal's job. And I, I think at a certain level and certainly for a certain time period, no one is spending more time with them than Mal Evans. I mean, he's accompanying Paul on vacations. He does the same thing with George in the late 60s and the early 70s, accompanies them on their business trips um, and is putting in just these enormous hours. Now, on the one hand, he does this because he loves it. You know, he's addicted to it. Uh, I mean, he kind of reminds me of, um, I'm, you know, of the great Breaking Bad TV series where at the end, the Walter White character just finally admits he did it all because he loved it and he would do it again. Mal would do it again. <laughs> right. So um, there's just no doubt about that. So but but still, when you talk about just the sheer number of hours, then, yeah, he was grossly underpaid. I, I, I don't think there's any argument to be made that. But in terms of what his salary was, um, not surprisingly, uh, Brian Epstein was very careful uh, when he first uh, began to formalize their relationships with Neil first and then with Mal, um, who never worked, by the way, for NIMS or Apple. They worked for Beatles and company. So they were paid out of the Beatles take directly uh, for all those years. Um and were never employees of other entities, uh, which is why Alan Klein found out, right, in 1969 that he could not fire Mal and Neil. Because <laughs> right. they had that great thing that we all hope to say if, we, if we're ever in a situation like that, I don't work for you. Mm. <laughs> so in any event, um, you know, I, I, it's a kind of a long answer to your very good question, but he was well paid on the one hand, but grossly underpaid on the other. Um, now- Mal's kind of responsible for the fact that he's putting in so many after work hours. They weren't requiring him all the time, just close to it. Rob's question here is missing. He offered to re-record his voice to overdub in places like this, but then he went missing for a month. We proceed without him. We're guessing that he probably made the point that intellectual slash research work often goes unpaid, bloggers, authors, podcasters, something like that. And the following is Ken's response. Now that is a, you know what, that's, that's a better analogy, uh, Rob. And, and, uh, I'm not surprised coming from you and, and, and the way you think about things. I think that's exactly right. Um, and, and as you know, with a book, um, even a very good selling book, right. Um, you're still in a situation where, your pay per hour is probably pennies simply simply because you're thinking about it sometimes for three, four, five years, depending on maybe longer, depending on the process and the timeline. So, um, yeah, I mean, 
at a certain level, anything that we're doing and we're doing earnestly, it's because we love it. Here again, Rob's question is missing. We can't remember what he asked. He's currently unavailable to assist. Probably had to do with Mal's mental state and his awareness that his life was on a kind of collision course with itself. More generally, the question may have had to do with the biographer's ability to get into the mind of her or his subjects, like posthumous phenomenology or something like that. Ken Womack had written a book about John Lennon's last days in 1980, and now he's writing about Mal from his diaries, manuscript, and the various other artifacts in his archive. So, in getting into the minds of John or Mal, what's the level of confidence in the insights the historian gains from painstaking research? Well, it's much harder to do. Um, so, with, with John Lennon, I really wanted to put a camera on his shoulder and allow us to see what he saw as he made this incredible, and I know it's not entirely the correct term, but comeback, the way he reemerges and um, decides to take the risk uh, to return to public life um, in such a dramatic way with making new music. Um, and of course, the thrill of bringing that music off in those last months and weeks um, I really wanted to, to capture that. So it was a pretty contained lens. With Mal, there is no containing Mal. You know, he is large. He contains multitudes. I mean, he is a bigger-than-life figure, um, you know, constantly in motion. Um, our host mentioned a moment ago, you know, that the Beatles were on Roundup 60 years ago. Uh, today, Mal was watching Kid Galahad, uh, the new Elvis Presley film, one of Elvis's campy films, campier, campy, whatever, <laughs> uh, films during his, uh, his movie years. <laughs> and, um, you know, always in motion the night before he was at the cavern and then he went back to the cavern the next night. So he was just really, really busy and engaged in living, not to mention the fact that he had a day job. So, um, in this case, uh, trying to contain Mal is very difficult because, what people will learn is he left behind multitudinous information about what he was doing, which is why we have a two-book project here, the biography, but then secondly, um, the collection of Mao's materials, which uh, I'm excited to see the world have access to so that they can go and discover their own Mao stories or learn something new behind the scenes about the Beatles or the many other artists that that came through their, uh, you know, through their landscape during those those heady days. So, um, but it, but in this case, it was trying to contain Mao and get a sense of, you know, where are the moments when, you know, we know how his life horribly ends. Where are the moments when he can't go back anymore? That he's on a collision course, uh, you know, with the with his own history. We'll be right back. This is the Beatles 60 Podcast. You know what we ain't doing. I'm Adrian, you know my name. Look up the number. So this is the story of a key player inside of Team Beatles, a gentle giant of a man who was constantly in motion and engaged in living. 
His biography and archive provide a glimpse into his life and traces the moments when he would tragically collide with his own history. Although Mal's life was full of laughter, readers of this biography will feel sadly frustrated at the tragic inevitability of his fate. Ken explains that at a certain point Mal's life is like the Titanic in those moments between seeing the iceberg and realizing that nothing can prevent the disaster that awaits. So I tested it on uh, one of my favorite beta readers, and that is my father, uh, who, you know, like a lot of uh, folks who know the Beatles, knew that he, he liked Mal a lot, but, but had we, I, I think most of us had no idea about how he was really living, which is um, what this biography will, will share with you. And yeah, there are plenty of moments of great hilarity. Um, often at Mal's own expense, he had no problem um, exposing himself, and I don't mean that in a in a, a lewd way, but exposing his own frailties and exposing his own faux pas and you know knuckleheadedness at times. Uh, so yeah, there'll be plenty of laughs, but but then there's that that moment that sets in when you're wondering, you know, it, it's sort of like forgive the comparison, but it's like the Titanic. You know, there when you study the Titanic story, you read about it, and you you think. Oh, you could still do something right now to, to write this ship. And at a certain point, Mal can no longer write his ship. Yeah. He can no longer stop the collision with the icebergs that exist in his own uh, future waters. It's a poignant moment. I mean, really, yeah. it's hard to think about how about Mal's end. It really is. Yeah. It is. And, and my father, like I said, um, uh, told me that he was talking out loud to the manuscript saying, you know, come on, don't do this, Mal. You're starting to constrain yourself into spaces uh, that you won't be able to escape. And uh, exactly what happens with him. I remember as a kid, I used to feel that about Elvis. Like, come on, Elvis, get, you can do it. Get on a, go on a diet or something. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and it's such a good comparison because, of course, Mal loved Elvis and adored him. And, uh, you know, if, I mean, there probably Mal would have quit being the Beatles roadie if the Elvis needed him. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I don't think that's, uh, I don't even think that's that extensive a, a claim. Um, but, but right, there are those moments, particularly in Elvis's last shows, where you're thinking to yourself, buddy, you're in your early 40s. You've still got this. You can still, yeah, yeah, you can still make a change. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, uh, dear listener, please excuse us for having lost the interview questions uh, for this first episode of three. The question that leads into the following telling of Mal and Lily going to the theater in 1962 probably was vaguely following up on the topic of Elvis and the film Kid Galahad. If you feel you're losing the thread of the conversation, don't worry. In episodes two and three, the Q&A will be more coherent. You decided to get married? We decided, Willie. We. It's a two-party arrangement, you know. You've been sniffing too many gasoline fumes, Galahad. My sister's not marrying any meatball. Is that plain I'll enough? I'll call me a meatball, Willie. I don't like it. I got plans for what I intend to do, and it's not stopping budget with my head. So you wind up a grease monkey in some broken-down garage? That's for my sister? I'm supposed to roll out the champagne? Roll out the champagne and stale beer. I don't care what you roll out. That's left up to you. The rest depends on rolls. All you had were your empty pockets and a shine on the seat of your pants. Don't push me, Willie. I'm a grease monkey that won't slide so easily. How long do you think it's taking me to find out the score up here, huh? This is a business, Willie. 
feeding yourself from the blood and sweat of these meatballs, as you call them. Is that the smart way, Willie? With two hoodlums riding you so close you can't even scratch without a written permission. Running back and forth to a bookie joint every day like a, like a scared kid. Right out of school. Ah, that's not for me, Willie. If I spill anybody's blood after Labor Day, it'll be my own. One reason, I'm not frightened by work. Shut up. You can't yell loud enough to make me shut up. <laughs> so in this case, they got a babysitter, and Mal went with his wife, Lily, uh, who didn't get to go out much because Gary, at this point, is a year and a half old or slightly less than that, and um, and their cousin, uh, Shirley, uh, who went along too, who's uh, still with us, thank goodness, and is a wonderful woman, um, great storyteller, and they went along to see Kid Galahad. In fact, um, Shirley, or Shan, as she's known in the family, uh, often would live with them up on Hillside Road in in Liverpool. Um, she was getting to that age, and Mal was her favorite uncle and uh, related uh, on uh, certainly on Lily's side uh, to the family. So, um, yeah, he they, they didn't go alone. They would have gone to one of those great cinemas that still existed in the time in Liverpool. You know, with balconies. Mm. And, you know, they probably Mal probably might have even worn a tie quite frankly, you know, those were different times, but they were going to the theater and there was a, still a level of formality, not, not for long, of course, uh, but still a little level of formality, uh, taking place. Just like all the members of team Beatles, Mal was most of all a risk taker. Getting back to the questions of the Beatles, having been the beneficiaries of sociocultural conditions, we definitely do, of course, have to measure in every factor of the perfect storm that formed the enormous wave that propelled them to the global toppermost. Their manager, their producer, their publisher, their luck, the timing, having been born just before the baby boom demographic. I'll repeat, just before the baby boomers, that would naturally give rise to a new transatlantic youth culture they had luck, but even more than that, they made their luck possible, luckily in all the right ways. We can't ignore the mania that stemmed from the guys themselves, right? Not least of which was their hard work, their talents, stubbornness, photogenic charm, sense of style, but also all the music they wanted to emulate, their humor, their scousiness, their hair, and of course the trousers. A factor often overlooked was the Beatles' willingness to take enormous risks. In this sense, Mal fit right in. Was his risk-taking more reckless than that of his famous employers? It would appear the answer in hindsight has to be yes. It's a mindset that can take you to the toppermost, or can do you in. His role in the group was like his uh, drug of choice. Maybe he indulged too much. The book aims to provide significant glimpses into Mal's life, including the moments when he couldn't stop his collision with his own history. End of part one. Be right back.
I hope that this conversation with Kenneth Womack has piqued your interest in learning more about Mal Evans. Don't forget to pre-order Ken's biography of Mal. Link is in the show notes. And please do join us next week for part two, where we'll dive deeper into the life and legacy of this until now somewhat enigmatic Beatles employee. But wait, there's more to this episode. I promise to tell you a story about the inner workings of this podcast as they happen to unfold and uh, sort of collapse for nine months, why we took so long to release this episode and why it sounds a bit weird. (laughs) You see, to capture our voices in high fidelity, uh, we used one of those fancy services that records each participant's audio separately and uploads it to the server. It sounds great, right? Well, these are still in the early days for whatever service uh, you're, you might choose, Zencaster, Riverside, Squadcast, or other services that allow you to record group discussions remotely with each voice on its own high-quality track. It's a niche industry that's developing quickly, but the process still isn't as solid or reliable as I'm sure it will be eventually. We can usually work around little bugs, but it went very wrong this time. Our guest interviewer, Rob Gertzen, had some old devices and a weak Wi-Fi connection. His audio for the first 40 minutes of the talk didn't upload fully, so his voice was missing. We didn't know this until the end of an almost two-hour live talk, so... Live listeners heard his questions or comments, but his voice wasn't recorded for the first 40 minutes. He's the guest interviewer asking great questions that nobody in the future will hear. In the recording, you hear only Ken's responses with little reactions here and there from Andy and me. Took a lot of sweat to move bits of audio around to cover for his absent voice. You could probably noticed that it wasn't quite right. I mean, this episode's audio sounded weird, I know. For fellow podcasters especially, I'll explain now how it happened. For those who are hoping for um, more drama, I do spill some tea later in the story. This this story has something for everyone. (laughs) Stay by me, eh? Okay, the technical part. Put simply... What happened was, about 40 minutes into the talk, either Rob lost his Wi-Fi connection or the power on his iPhone was running low. For whatever reason, he bailed on the phone and switched to his laptop. He could have waited another few seconds to be sure that his first recording uploaded before he switched to his old MacBook. We tell people in advance, everybody knows, it's the number one thing in, in our process is like, you got to make sure you're fully uploaded before you close the, the app. <laughs> so he could have waited, but, you know, it's probably he's just a few seconds away from fully uploading it, you know, and then everything would have been beautiful. But he switched mid-show to another device and the, the MacBook, we do have the recordings, but so maybe he was so anxious or impatient to get back into the conversation that he didn't think or didn't take the time to 
to make that small little small step with his smartphone and just pause a moment to make sure that it uploaded 100%. His old iPhone probably ran out of battery life. This had happened in our trial run, so uh, I had some experience with this particular device. <laughs> Uh, his uncompressed audio uh, upload was stuck at 99%. So you might think that that sounds better than, say, 50%. It's almost there, right? But anything partial, even 1% less than 100, means that the track isn't there at all. <laughs> it's either 100% or nothing. <laughs> In this case, nothing. That's the harsh reality of it. There had been other minor disruptions in this particular um, two-hour uh, four-person talk. Ken and Andy both also lost connections a couple of times, but their audio uploaded fine. They, they did the right thing and, and uploaded their audio before coming back. There simply was no recording of Rob in the first part, even, even now, nine months later. The online studio control panel still is pathetically trying to finish that upload. It's still at 99%. The little wheel is turning round and round expectantly. <laughs> still uploading. <laughs> Nine months later. An error message there under that still says, uh, what does it say? Let me see. It says that his first track couldn't be processed. <laughs> okay. Now, here's one minute of pure, boring audio tech talk. I hope that you'll focus, dear listeners. Everyone should be able to understand this. Are you ready? You're focusing? Here we go. When you think of group chats on the web, you probably think of Skype or Messenger or Zoom or Microsoft Teams conferencing apps, right? Those are... All participants merged into a single compressed stream. So it's not high bandwidth. It's just, you know, it's, it's a little bit low quality, low, low, yeah, low quality, but um, doesn't get disrupted because it's, it's low bandwidth as well. So there's nothing else going on in those cases. But by contrast, the fancy services that podcasters use, including us, for higher quality recordings have something extra. And this is the important point. Sure, uh, our fancy services also have those merged compressed streams, but there's this all important second function going on in the background that makes it different from Zoom and different from Messenger and different from Skype and different from Teams, right? The second function going on in the background is the important bit. It's a direct recording of each individual from their devices, uncompressed, that's constantly loading. That's the important part, right? So Rob's weak battery and Wi-Fi hadn't kept him from participating in Zoom calls, right? And he pointed this out. I can do Zoom calls. Why can't I do this? You know? So in his mind, it should be possible to capture our recording using his same limitations, same devices. Why not? Same Wi-Fi. It works on other conference calls. Why not this one? But his old setup wasn't up to this task. This isn't low bandwidth like Zoom, right? Our, our 
hi-fi recording uploaded in the background probably overwhelmed his battery. It was the first time I faced this severe uh, an issue with live talk recording, not trying to apportion blame for it. The recording vendor says that they have ways to troubleshoot this kind of issue, but it was late for me in my East Asian time zone, like 2.30 a.m. when we finished talking, and I wasn't going to help him troubleshoot at that late hour. I was too tired. Rob would be too impatient, absolutely, no doubt and probably wouldn't have thought to recharge his phone while he was on the laptop. Just by guest hosting, he'd already done his best. Uh, he probably felt that it wasn't his fault that our online recording service used so much bandwidth and energy. I can understand it from his perspective. You know, he's not in, he's not in the business of doing professional recordings. You know, he's a guest. The discussion was what mattered and why why do we also need to contend with these technical challenges? I can understand that. You ever notice how the promises of new technologies make it sound as if everyone is happy to follow their ridiculously long troubleshooting lists? You know, as if we all can just put on our techie engineer hats. <laughs> you know? The app people... The app people... <laughs> uh, in this case, in their support copy address the problem of incomplete uploads. But they make it sound as if everyone has the time to perform this long series of technical troubleshooting steps, even after a long live discussion. Uh, so non-technical people who are tired are going to stay, stay on the line and, and go through all this. You know, their support assumes that uh, we all have the time and patience to go through a step-by-step -step process to recover sound from a guest's smartphone or PC, I can't in a million years imagine Rob wanting to do that. And the whole troubleshooting process would depend on him, on his device's battery being charged. Performing all these steps, my role would be like, like a coach, you know, on the line with him, long distance. Rob just isn't a tech troubleshooter type of guy. I knew this from the trial run. Uh, there's no doubt he would probably rather rub poop in his hair <laughs> or stick needles in his eyeballs than go through all these troubleshooting steps. He's just not the type. And the app people <laughs> are ridiculous for assuming that our podcast guests are all willing to get this deep into the inconvenient weeds just to have a voice. At 2.30 a.m., after a two-hour live talk, I was too exhausted even to look at the tech support info. If I had, I mean, oh, if you want to know just how they say the upload is retrievable, <laughs> even after a finished live talk, it's retrievable, they say. Here's what they advise. Here it is. The support steps say, Important! Do not uninstall, delete, or log out of the app before the upload finishes. This will delete your recording data and it cannot be recovered. We suggest you reopen the app. The mobile app must be open for the track to finish uploading. Check the progress on the upload status screen. Turn your mobile device off, then turn it back on. 
Reopen the mobile app to finish the upload. Confirm that you have installed the latest version of the iOS app. Check that your device meets the iOS requirements. Check that your device's time is correct and automatically set. Try using a different Wi-Fi network or cellular data connection. Yeah, he doesn't have those. <laughs> so I just knew that there was no way we would even start all those steps at the moment. Knowing me and knowing Rob, uh-huh. <laughs> Instinctively, I knew that this would never happen. Instead of hoping to retrieve the uncompressed recording from his phone, we'd have to overdub later, you know? Overdub his question sometime in the future. That'd be a perfectly fine solution. Later, not now, not, not the next day, just a vague later. There was no choice other than to backburner the whole thing, I felt at the time. The recordings of Andy, Ken, me... And the second half of Rob were fine. Uh, I downloaded and kept them in both the studio online and on my hard drive here for all these months. But I wasn't able to make the, the time for fixing this mess. Uh, many months would go by and this project remained backburnered. I'm sorry. And then... Not long after that, uh, after the uh, after we recorded uh, the Ken Womack interview in January, yet another unexpected internal event. Beatle 60 co-host Andy suddenly announces, my buddy Andy, yep, with no prior notice at all, that he needs to take indefinite leave from podcasting in order to write a book. I said, what is this bullshit? No, no, I'm joking. <laughs> I didn't say that to him. Um, but you, you may have noticed that he is in this three-episode series. He was a great help in setting up and conducting the interview with Dr. Womack uh, and with Rob. And Andy and I collaborated on many episodes of Beatles 60. Go back and listen. Uh, during those collaborations, we were in constant contact via the usual collaboration tools, Messenger, Slack, Google Drive, and so on. So it was like a virtual office, you know? <laughs> it was kind of like having a job. That's true. Uh, for me, as an experienced project manager, this is all normal. Uh, it's not for everyone, though. Most people hate keeping schedules and making deadlines. Uh, Andy did it well, but it wasn't something he was used to, juggling all these meetings and things. And we're not paid anything for doing this, you know what I mean? So you have to really want to do it. Andy explained that he might return to the show later. He had to choose between projects. The solitary process of completing his book appealed to him more than podcasting, which is like having uh, a real job. We had a lot of fun and learned a lot from each other over the past year. We had almost no disagreements and no major difficulties. Uh, we shared a passion for making sense of the Beatles' story. We're a solid match as co-hosts, and we both aimed to make the podcast interesting for our listeners to the best of our abilities. But yeah, I do need to announce that Andy will be on extended leave after this three-part mail series, I wish him all the best, and I hope he'll come back to the podcast when he's ready. Andy, if you're listening, thank you for everything, and good luck with your book. I can't wait to read it. 
Well, we're only halfway through the story of getting this episode done. Whew. It's a long story, eh? but now comes the interpersonal drama. Uh, months went by. Hmm. Unexpectedly with some outside projects. I stopped podcasting work altogether during the summer. In case you don't know, we have no podcast team. Don't confuse us with you know, big fancy media companies. You know, many podcasts are produced by media companies with executive producers, hosts, audio engineers, writers, editors, graphic designers, outreach managers, and I guess even more staff in whatever roles. Uh, you also have scrappy little podcasts and everything in between, but you have scrappy little podcasts like Beetle 60, where one person handles all those roles me. <laughs> and that's why an episode can take up to a month normally to produce. Nine months under abnormal circumstances. <laughs> Nobody does it alone? I, I don't know. I'm kind of on my own in making uh, podcast episodes happen. Um, doing it successfully or sustainably alone is uh, another question. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> well, summer ended... Rob and I hadn't followed up with each other for all those months. We would briefly connect now and then and remind each other that we were definitely going to get around to the overdubbing fix. We both still felt we owed it to the others to get this episode published. Ken Womack had already done his part, given us his time and his insights. We owed it to him to get this done, and, and we owed it to the legacy of Mal Evans, too. And he did his part, and I think... I think Rob and I both, we both had this on our minds. I wasn't at all surprised when he contacted me about a month ago and suggested we really should put it all together. You know, like this time for real, let's really do it. He understood the task before us. He understood that we had to get his overdubs. He understood that we had to get his overdubs done first. This was early October. Uh, Ken's book was coming out in mid-November. We were running out of time. <sighs> At that point, I made a commitment to put all my other work aside and focus on getting this sorted together with Rob. I thought he was ready to cooperate and collaborate with me. He was so enthusiastic about it, and, and he bought a microphone. <laughs> He just seemed ready to, to make it happen. I'm a sort of make-it-happen kind of project manager type of guy. Uh, either that or don't start, you know? <laughs> I don't like to have projects half done. You know, if I'm going to do something, if I say I'm going to do it, then I'm going to do it. And I believed him. And, well, guess what? I was a fool to have believed him. Uh, but I believed him. And so... I did my part and came up with a plan to get these episodes into shape. I put so much care into facilitating this for him. <laughs> uh, it took me many hours. And maybe this maybe this put him off. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. It shouldn't have, though, because it still was... I was facilitating. I wasn't making it more difficult. I was making it easier. Absolutely. And I'd made a commitment to do that, so I had to follow through. And now I was... I was making it happen. <laughs> you know, I took inventory of the audio files we had. I downloaded the transcripts from the studio. I synced everything up 
uh, synced up the tracks by hand. I created an, an MP3 reference for Rob and sent him everything he would need. So I sort of digested it all for him. You know, it wasn't complicated, really. I made it as simple as I could. I just needed for him to re-record his voice to insert into the first 40 minutes. His only task was to record new voice files. I, th I would think he could do it in an hour even, you know, it would have... An hour of his time would have saved me, you know, three weeks of my time. And I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and two weeks went by, total silence from Rob, <laughs> you know? He's never explained exactly what happened. Um, maybe he did have other priorities, but I mean, I had other priorities too. The point is that we both made a commitment to collaborate on this and to, to get it done. Um, there's this mysterious imbalance where, where I honor the commitment and he doesn't, you know? The process is asymmetrical like that. When I have the ball, I keep him informed of, of what's happening on my side, my tasks, my workflow, what to expect, when to expect the ball to be passed to him. And once it's passed to his side, once it's passed to him, then he doesn't reciprocate. It's like two weeks of silence. I don't know what's going on. I don't, he doesn't keep me up on what's happening. And so don't get me wrong. I didn't feel irritated or angry. It's more just concerned about the deadline. I was just getting more and more nervous about this, you know, uh, because after it was just a step in a process. That's why it's called project management. Um, it's just a step in a process and one has to hand off to another and and then there's more stuff to do so he he couldn't like hand off at the last minute because that that i still had you know hours and hours of work to do after that so so i needed this needed to get done first if you know what i mean i was just more concerned about the deadline and there was no way of knowing whether he was working on it and needed more time maybe maybe or whether he'd fumbled the ball and just given up either way i i, I didn't know you know the clock was ticking and he was silent, so every day I was concerned and unable to proceed. Right, so anyway, it finally became clear at that point a few weeks ago that I was on my own, and I had to think out how to edit without Rob's special voice in the first episode. He has this unique voice, somewhat similar to the voice of Triumph the insult comic dog, you know? <laughs> uh, here I was up against a real deadline and suddenly I'm on my own having to, you know, resolve the ghost host issue. And uh, I was thinking of trying to overdub his questions in my own voice, like the way the BBC used to do with uh, Sinn Féin's Jerry Adams, you know? What Mr. Adams said was... <laughs> you know, but no, I, uh, I couldn't replace his voice with my own, you know, and I recalled, and, and I think Rob, Ken, and Andy, all of us will recall that Rob's questions nine months ago were excellent, but at this point, I couldn't remember what those questions were, so screw that idea. <laughs> I was stuck, you know, rocks are hard, water is wet, and... The guest host's voice is missing in part one. That's the reality. There's no other way to look at it. The guest host was now a ghost host. 
and I decided to go ahead and edit around the ghost host's long silences just to do my best in the edits to work around the issue. Awkward, yeah, but it was doable. If I couldn't rely on him, you know, to get me his overdubs in time for post-production, then everything had to be rearranged. He was silent and unreachable. There was a looming deadline. Hey, boy. The post-production took about three times the normal amount of time I had to sculpt this episode. Full-time audio sculpting for a couple of weeks. Uh, for example... That Halloween bit where Rob disappears, it didn't really happen that way, but I needed a device because you hear Andy introduce Rob <laughs> and then total silence. So I had to do something. So I concocted that weird silence to provide the, the listener with an, an early hint that something is missing. In this way, um, at various moments in this episode, uh, it, it's an audio quilt. <laughs> of things rearranged like this. <clears throat> so, you know, the show must go on, right? I did feel frustrated, I guess. I will admit, a little bit frustrated. Collaboration entails responsive communication. Even in normal friendship, when we're not collaborating, just keeping in touch, he's only responsive when he wants to be. Otherwise, even when... You can see that he's obviously online doing stuff on Facebook and he's got the little green thing to show that he's online. Even then, he's usually unresponsive. We don't know what Rob's doing <laughs> during his weeks at a time of unresponsiveness, uh, but it normally doesn't matter if you're not like depending on him for something. And, you know, also, we need to cut the man some slack. Let me, let me say that, too. He, he does, in fact, lead a busy life and... He works in public advocacy. He has an advocacy role in Amsterdam. For the people on whose behalf he advocates, his priorities uh, can quite literally probably be a matter of life and death, for all I know. I'm not willing to trouble someone dealing with all that he deals with. Nevertheless, as I said, rocks are hard, water is wet, and he never did hand over his fucking voice overdub files you know that's it you know he did and he didn't he didn't say i'm sorry larry i i give up <laughs> you know nothing it was just fucking silence it was his idea to proceed with this right remember that it's like he said let's go and then i agree and then i rearrange my life around the project and then he disappears you know ordinarily when we're not depending on each other he disappears most of the time and reappears when he wants to, as I said. And that's fine. Rob's slow replies on Messenger are fine ordinarily. I don't care. But as collaborators, we need to communicate faster. He, he may not have realized that. It's weird because other guests tend to recognize the importance of all of us being responsive behind the scenes. For example, um, Ken Womack responds to email almost instantaneously. You know, it's like two minutes and then you get a reply from him. I have a deadline to finish three podcast episodes before Ken's book launch uh, in mid-November. And trying to get cooperation from Rob was a big waste of time of a detour. And now I'm really pressed. 
I may never know what happened with him, but I know that I'll never get back all these wasted hours of extra work. And to be clear, mind you, again, I'm, I know I keep going back and forth. Yeah, but... <laughs> but to be clear, our ghost host is not an asshole. That's not what I'm saying. So, Rob, if you're listening, you're not an asshole, <laughs> as far as I know. Uh, maybe this story casts him in an unflattering but true light. I just hasten to add that Rob's extremely well-read on Beatles topics and has brilliant insights. And when we connect, we have great conversations, and Rob is brilliant when we're trading ideas. But I'm never going to depend on him for anything ever again. Uh, a great mind and a lousy collaborator. You know, podcasting and producing a podcast together with him... Um, I don't want to complain because, you know, maybe his limitations in that regard are just like the flip side of genius, you know what I mean? So maybe the energy and qualities that, that, that lead him to be sort of brilliant in his own uh, writing are also qualities that make him a shitty collaborator. <laughs> it's possible. It reminds me of how um, John Lennon says he felt when Phil Spector uh, held their studio tapes hostage. <laughs> John's telling of the story was so funny, I'll, I'll share it. It's not exactly the same situation, but very similar. And that was the first one where I gave Spectre his head. Although it came to a, to a, a different kind of head in the end. It's a long, another long story. If you look at the album, there's about five of Spectres, and then there's five I knocked off in five days, which was Bebop Lula and the, the Holly stuff and... The Carla Thomas, Sam Cooke song and all that because he, he ran away with the tapes. He called me. Yeah, he ran off with the, the 16 tracks and locked them in his in his garage or somewhere. I couldn't get him and he called me one night. A very far out guy, you know, he calls me and said, he calls me, and we're in the middle of the session, but I, because I, I, I'd never got that close to him on the Imagine the Plastic Owner things because he'd been very good and just come and gone away again and I hadn't really got to know him. On the rock and roll, it took me three weeks to convince him that I wasn't going to co-produce with him and I wasn't going to go in the control room. I was only, I said, I just want to be your singer. You just treat me like Ronnie. We pick the material. I just want to sing. I don't want anything to do with production or writing or creation. I just want to sing. So I finally convinced him. Anyway, long story short, one day he, when he didn't want to work one night, he called me and said, the studio's been burnt down. <laughs> now, these, the, the early days, I didn't know about him, you know didn't know how far away he was so i said oh the studio's burned down so anyway a couple of hours but the studio's burned down so i get somebody to call the studio it hasn't been burned down that was the sunday the following sunday he calls me and he says on the phone hey johnny i said oh there you are phil what happened we're supposed to be doing a session on it i've got the john dean tapes i says what i've got the john dean tapes Right, Watergate. I said, what are you doing? What are you talking about? He says, the house is surrounded by helicopters now. They're trying to get him. I said, the house is surrounded. I'm buying this garbage, you know. <laughs> so I'm saying, the house is surrounded. You got the John Dean tapes. I, I said, well, what about our session? You know, aren't we supposed to be finishing or something? You know, it's costing money. That <laughs> he said, I said, what are you doing? The I'm the only one that knows how to tell whether they've been doctored or edited or not. I said, well, what he was telling me in his own sweet way was he had my tapes. 
Not the John D. Watergate tapes. He had my tapes locked in the cellar in behind the barbed wire and the Afghan dogs and the machine guns. So there's no way you could get them. So that that album was stopped in the middle for a year, and we we had to sue through capital to get them back off him. By then it had been going on and on and on, and it was the it was the Tampax Lost Weekend period as well, and it was all hell was going on. And I I somehow got committed to producing Harry Nielsen's album, which that's when I sobered up in Harry Nielsen's album because I took Pete Moon. Meanwhile, in repairing the current episode, I needed some extra narration to fill Rob's silences. So the new artificial co-host is named Adrian Adam Anderson, and any resemblance to Andy's voice is purely coincidental. Again, let me reiterate, you'll hear Rob in parts two and three next week and the week after. He's a wonderful guest host, actually. And of course, we credit Rob uh, for initiating this discussion and for helping us to understand how Mal mattered to the Beatles. Well, anyway, after a lot of sweat, I managed to rescue the first episode with no help from him, (laughs) just like John Lennon managed to finish the rock and roll album without Phil Spector. Fine, you know, Uh, and that's the story, and that's the way it was, and that's the truth. (laughs) That's the story of how I managed to salvage our our interview with Dr. Kenneth Womack about his book on Mal Evans. Pre-order now. Links are in the show notes. End of story. I want to thank you, listeners, by the way, for your patience. I know it it took us a long time to realize uh, this episode and get it out there. And I know it uh, had some flaws and glitches. (laughs) I hope you tolerated my rambling behind-the-scenes telling of the internal drama of this episode's production challenges. Uh, It's a kind of weird Picasso of an edited podcast episode, isn't it? (laughs) It required explaining, and uh, the explanation was complicated. Sorry. Last but not least, of course, I hope we all learned new and interesting things about Mal Evans and his roles in facilitating the Beatles with their beetling. The Beatles with their beetling. You know that um, Americans turn T's into D's, so we say Beatles. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? Beatles with their beetling. Um, yeah, in our links today, please find the episode of the Nothing Is Real podcast covering November 1963. It's perfect. It's perfect. Perfect. Also... Shout out to Obadiah of the Gimme Some Truth podcast. In our show notes, find a link to his episode that dispels the myth that Ed Sullivan was at London Airport when the lads uh, returned from Sweden on Halloween in 1963. I'll also share links to Kenneth Womack's other appearances in whatever media related to his new 
biography of Mal Evans, so you'll find lots of Ken Womack, Mal Evans links. Um, any uh, podcasters who have relevant content covering events 60 years past, please uh, contact me through our uh, Facebook group. Is that's all for now. Tune in next week for part two of our interview with Ken, where uh, we'll explore some more aspects of this incredible man's life and legacy. Uh, you'll hear Rob next week. <laughs> Tell me if you think his voice uh, is anything like Triumph, the insult comic dog. And until then, you know, keep rocking. Um, the following outro music is Loosen Up with the Kessels. Uh, link in the show notes uh, here. It has some Don't Let Me Down samples overdubbed just to be weird. Bye for now. That slogan. This is a chronicle. Chronicle. Beatles 60. We ain't jumping around.